Hello everyone, my name is Roshane Vijayatunga, Senior Editor for Oncology at Future Science Group. I'm very excited to say that we are here at ESMO GI in Barcelona with Barbara Moss, a patient ambassador for Europa Colon and Bowel Cancer UK. At the age of 52, in 2006, Barbara was diagnosed with stage 4 colorectal cancer of the colon, spread to the liver, and was told she had 3-5 to five months to live. Barbara is now an active campaigner and an active member of several organisations in the UK and Europe. Her main wish is for patients to be able to access the medicine that they need, to have choices clearly explained and to be treated personally. Hi Barbara, thank you so much for talking with us today and giving us an amazing opportunity to find out more about you and hear your story. Before we talk about your diagnosis, I wonder if you could please tell us a little bit about your life before being diagnosed with cancer always thought about myself as just a very ordinary person. I was teaching and that is was a time of my life when everything was just right. You know, I had a wonderful job uh, in two schools in Worcester, uh, married happily, two sons doing well, you know, they were going out to university, starting their first job. So um, nothing could have been better really. Okay. Um, and in the summer of 2006, you described yourself as getting unusually tired, and you put this down to the fact that you were getting older. You also mentioned that when reading up on symptoms that you had on the internet, cancer had been coming up, but you thought that couldn't really be happening. And on speaking to other cancer patients, have you found this to be quite a common reaction when people experience unusual symptoms? And would you encourage people to just get checked up as soon as possible, even if they're sure there can't be anything wrong? Right, there's a lot in that. Uh, going back six years before 2006, I did have all the symptoms of bowel cancer and I went straight away yeah. to my doctor to be checked up. Um, but I was misdiagnosed and right. told I had hemorrhoids. And so I really, we celebrated, we felt really great. Yeah. Um, because I thought, well, this is normal and it didn't need to be treated. I could, I could live with that. Yeah. So it was over those six years towards the end, I started to feel really tired mm -hmm. and I started to exercise thinking, well, I'm getting older, let's do a bit. Uh, and I was just getting more and more tired rather yeah. than fitter. So I, I went back to my doctor three times and again was diagnosed three times. Wow. Uh, but you know, following up on your questions, um, yes, I think, of course, patients must act on their symptoms. Yeah. They really should follow up because colon cancer, colorectal cancer, is curable yes. if it's caught early, early. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and without too much risk yeah. at all. So it really, uh, you, you'd be in hospital and out in a few days. So any concerns, any worries, definitely people should go and get checked straight away. And given the opportunity of screening, just take, take it. it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in your book, Who's Been Peeping in My Bed, you talk about the feeling of helplessness in the lead up to getting a diagnosis and that only after you were told that you won't be going back to work until you see the back of this cancer, you truly realise the seriousness of your situation. I mean, you say it, it takes a while for things to sink in and how one day your life continues as normal and the next you're lying in a hospital bed and your outlook has changed and things have been turned upside down in an instant. Can you tell us a little bit about this time? Yeah. It, it was it was just a, a blow, a complete blow. Um, although, you know, I've explained to you I, I did fear I had cancer, I've been told all, the, all along that I hadn't. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until I was so anemic, blood, red blood count is six, 
uh, that I was sent to A&E for a blood transfusion right. and I had to wait a full day and I could hardly sit on the chair um, and, and it was that was a dreadful day and I said to Mark go to work and he came back from work I was still sitting on the chair um, and then it was the middle of the night when really looked at in a corridor behind a curtain yeah. and then they had to I was told that I might not be going back to work and yeah. it hits you yeah that's when it really hit me because I was also almost saying I can have the CT scan it was a Friday then go back to, to, to work you know for, yeah. if I had to wait for the CT scan that I, I could go back to work and then come back for the scan and they said well you might have to wait longer for your scan if you go home. Mm -hmm. So I had to just, from that point, it was a cut-off from having worked the day before. Yeah. And it was complete shock. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so what was it like to have that conversation with your husband, Mark, and your two sons after you'd been told the cancer was terminal? Well, it was uh, later on that night when I was put into a bed, and uh, Mark asked, what's, what's the prognosis? Yeah. And he said, there's no chance, three months. And so it, this d developed into more and more. But you can just imagine, Mark nearly fell off his chair. Yep. And then what was really the worst for me was imagining him telling my two sons and how difficult that must have been for him. You know, and um, I think uh, I can just relive it now. Yeah. Um. One thing, actually, I got from reading your book was that you had such a grace to be so positive and remember your blessings amidst even such a painful reality. And you talk about how you wanted others to be happy and not to mourn, and you thought about how lucky you were and that there was really nothing left undone that you had to do. Where did you find the strength to see the positives in such a difficult time? You talk about my poem, <sighs> and it was when Mark went home, I was on my own, yeah. and I uh, started to just... Thing. I don't know, I didn't look for positivity, sure. it, it was just how I felt. Mm -hmm. I felt I was lucky, I felt um, I'd had a good life, yeah. that I'd, there was nothing that couldn't be continued with the family uh, without me, mm -hmm. but they, they were the ones I was concerned for, sure. because when someone dies, you know, they're left bereft, and yeah. they, they have that hole, that vacuum in their lives. And so uh, that's really the way they thought. And then when you think three months, it's not long at all. Yeah. If you think back, what have I done in the last three months? It's not long. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to leave something, you know, yeah. so I wrote a left letter to each one of them yeah. personally yeah. and how I'd imagine them, um, you know, getting married yeah. and their children and getting their degrees and just think, you know, for them to know I'd be there in spirit. Yeah. And uh, and then I was there in reality when yeah, it happened. Yeah, amazing. Because I'm alive. Yeah, thank you. yeah, that's amazing. And following on from that, obviously you described the tremendous support, love and prayers you received from your family, including your mum, Mark, your husband, your two sons, Jevon and Aidan, your mother-in-law, your brothers and sister and their families. How important was this for you? Incredibly important. Um, the family came together. Yeah. And um, I just got so much strength from that. Uh, and really what it brings home to you is how do people manage if they don't have that? Yeah. Because that just helped me so much. Yeah. You know, the feeling of love, that warmth 
the arms around you, yeah. the care. Um, yeah, I just think for the people who haven't got it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the liver surgeon um, going on now from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham said that if the tumour could shrink, he was prepared to operate and remove it. So how did it feel to have that hope to cling to? This made all the difference yeah. because from first the feeling of nothing we can do, only palliative, um, to if there's a chance, yeah. if this happens we can do that. Yeah. It just gave me a target and something to work for and it was a gastroenterologist yeah. who attended the MDT and we were just so lucky that that one in four weeks was that the week when the surgeon from Birmingham would attend that meeting yeah. and he was the one who from that point gave us something, the strength yeah. to go on, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, so before your treatment um, started, you spoke in your book about wanting to do normal things and no longer taking things for granted. You also talked about feeling odd at being the centre of attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about this time pre-chemotherapy? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm not a person who likes too much attention focused on herself. Yeah. Um, and although, when I have strong views, I express them, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I'm, I'm that sort of person. Um, but I don't like being fussed over, on the other hand. And, uh, you know, when the f I felt a bit fussed over yeah. and uh, the family gave me attention and they'd come to visit me and they wouldn't know what to say. Yeah. So I, I found that I was trying to cheer them up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, so it was odd, very yeah. odd. You'd sit there and everyone would be attending to you, the nurses be attending to you, family would be there sitting beside me, and I, I just thought it wasn't worth that. <laughs> oh no. You had the PIC line inserted before Christmas, and your first chemo was scheduled for the 2nd of January. So what was this Christmas like for you, and what went through your mind before chemotherapy? Did you react maybe differently to how you'd expected to? Um, it was quite a saga because... It was planned that I'd, I'd have my first chemo after Christmas, so yes. Christmas could be normal for yes. the family. But the pick line would be put in, so I'd be ready to go straight into it. Mm -hmm. 2nd of January, I think he said. Um, as soon as the, the chemo um, centres were yep. functioning again. Yep. So um, I went in for my pick and I had a, an allergic reaction to it and a raging temperature yeah. and I had to go into the hospital again, always the middle of the night, you mm. know, when it happens, Mark would have to get up, take me. And uh, the A&E was always quite a way away in Cheltenham, right. it wasn't the local hospital, so um, we'd have to go there. And I was in there over Christmas, not quite as planned, but... Uh, they allowed me to go home for Christmas Day and I had planned to cook that Christmas a special Jamie Oliver recipe yeah. with the turkey and so on and you know Mark, Jevon and Aidan are two sons they cooked the whole oh, meal wow, for me that's lovely. and they had the music oh, and the decorations yeah. and, and there are other things I can say about that Christmas because I tried to keep it normal this before I went into hospital that every year um, we've always bought an extra piece of decoration. Yes. And I wanted to do this the same. And when I was buying this beautiful tinsel that we found that year, um, 
I was thinking, yeah, I won't be here next year to see this. Oh. And these sort of thoughts, when you look at clothes, yeah. you think, is it worth spending the money? Sure. Um, but that's, yes, it was a lovely Christmas. Mark took me back at the end of the day. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, one striking statement you made in your book was, um, I felt such a nuisance to everyone as I was causing so much disruption. They were flooding me with their love and I was giving them nothing back in return. Do you find this to be a common feeling amongst cancer patients? Uh, yes, from being independent, you're suddenly helpless. Yeah. And um, you have to be cared for, you have to be taken to hospital. And I know some people have to do it on their own. Sure. So there's always the, the consideration, yes. the, the understanding how difficult it must be for them. But I, I didn't have that, you know, I, I, was, I was really cared for by my family. Um, and so I did feel a nuisance that they were, that life was suddenly, for all of them, not just myself, revolving around me. Yeah. So Mark would have to take time off work for, to take me to my appointments. And I had at least three appointments every week because between every chemo, there was a blood transfusion. Yes. And after your chemo, you had to go back um, to have the, the five FU bottle removed, yes. which had to last three days. Right. And then there'd be other problems. You know, I'd have sickness and yeah. have to go in. So, so many visits to hospital and had to take time off work. Yeah. So I was, a, I was an absolute nuisance. I'm sure he didn't, he didn't see it that way. <laughs> he didn't, no, but I'll, I'll actually tell you about an, another lady who I met in the hospice, and sh her name was Deirdre, and um, she was a volunteer and came to help me initially, yeah. and then she was diagnosed okay. with cancer. And uh, when I sat beside her, she said, I'm not gonna have any treatment. And I said, why not? You know, come on, Deirdre, be positive, yeah. come on. And she said, my son took me around Tesco, and I just saw the look on his face and what he was going through, and I thought, I don't want him to have to suffer that. Uh, and you know, these are the things, experiences yeah, you learn. Yeah. And she has a right to do what she wants to have or to refuse treatment as she wants. Yeah. But but yeah. Oh, you yeah, learn these things which people don't realise. Yeah. Um, and talking about the hospice, you talk about your time at St Richard's Hospice and how valuable it, it was. For example, I mean, something that stood up for me, being able to talk about death, um, actually, with people going through the same journey as you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the hospice and your experiences there? The hospice was a fantastic place for yeah. all of us. And as soon as you entered the building, you just felt love. Now, it was tangible. Yeah. And it was a happy place. You yeah. know, you wouldn't think that people are dying in there every day but it's a happy place mm. and uh, it's a strange thing because cancer gave me peace of mind um, okay. and I've nev I'd never experienced such peace of mm -hmm. mind before and we did talk about all sorts of things and that's why it's such a useful medium to be able to talk to other patients who are going through what you're going through because we all understand one another sure, yeah. and so it was completely open um, and we talked about coffins yeah you know, the coffin we'd have uh, and the funeral we'd have, and I yeah. planned my funeral. Yeah. Uh, the songs, the music, yeah. you know, the prayers. And uh, I can tell you about a few people individually. Deborah, who I met there, she wanted a cardboard coffin mm -hmm. with poppies, and then I saw her in it. Yeah. You know, and then Donna, who wanted to be drawn through the little village she lived in, 
in a horse-drawn, little oh, yeah. pony-drawn glass chariot. Yeah. And then we were there, and she wanted balloons. You know, each one of oh, us had yeah. to lift a balloon lift, yeah. into the sky for her. Um, and then Liz, who right at the end of her life, you know, she desperately wanted my book and to read my book. Yeah. And so I especially went into the hospice and, and took it to her, and I thought, gosh, actually you're not going to be able to read this yeah but you wanted it so i did that for her and these are the things that yeah. we talked about okay um there was a time after the chemotherapy had started that you heard that the tumor had grown and then your chemotherapy regime had to be changed and you had to come to terms with the fact again that you were going to lose your hair at that point as well and in the same period you had to go to into a and e after your stomach started swelling so can you tell us a little bit about this time Yes, a several period of a few months, yeah. and um, I was put onto. Th there were two types, and this is back in 2006. We're yeah. talking about, yeah. so I know things have changed now, but there were two main types of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So I was given the first, the usual one, oxaliplatin, five FU, mm -hmm. and um, I really felt I was getting better. Yeah. But after the four treatments. Um, I was shocked to find out it was gone worse. Yeah. I now had a 15 centimeter tumor in my left liver. And uh, I was shocked to be told, well, you'll have to have the other chemotherapy because actually those were the only two things at the time yeah. available yeah. Um, on the NHS. So, um, you know, the, the, that was standard practice. So, um, yes, a lot of concerns yeah. because um, I believed, you know, I was thinking very, very positively, and I believe the tumor shrunk. Yeah. So when I was told that the chemotherapy hadn't worked, I was shocked. Yeah. Um, and they would have to change. Yes. So I was now put on tour and TCAN, mm -hmm. the only other option available on the NHS. And uh, well, yes, I had to go and get my wig and so on to be prepared, and yeah. you know, all all these things. And then. Um, my surgeon had said that he, if that tumour had shrunk, he was prepared to operate and it would be the left, the entire left liver lobe, which now had this 15 centimetre mm -hmm. tumour, and also the entire ascending um, colon. So uh, when my stomach started to swell, yeah. it meant there was a blockage that the tumour in my colon was blocking. blocking. And okay. I was worried because I knew if this happened, it was an emergency. Right. I was in hospital, yeah. and they might have to operate. Yeah. Um, but it's quite a funny incident and very personal yeah. <laughs> because I was put into the ward, and um, by I think it was the next day, um, my bowels opened. Okay. And um, I, I was in, in a shared room of four yeah. ladies, and I just sang. Hallelujah! <laughs> at the top of my voice, and I think everyone knew exactly yeah. what had happened. <laughs> um, so then you got some positive news because you'd been told that the tumor had shrunk by twenty-five percent in both directions. Um, why was this still not enough for the operation to take place? Um, the tumor was one large solid tumor in my liver, right. in the left liver lobe. And it was much too close to the portal vein. Right. And there had to be a clearance of two clear millimetres for them to be able to operate. Okay. Um, so it's so margins of millimetres. Yes, gosh, absolutely. Yeah. They yeah. had to leave that clear and they wouldn't be able to. Right. 
but the rest of the lobe did plan to be taken away. Okay. So it, that was the, that was the, the critical factor yeah. that it it wasn't, you know, sufficiently yeah. away yeah. from the portal vein. So I had to wait mm -hmm. longer. Um, so you might, you've been through such a mixed bag of emotions. In one section in your book, you say, Mark and I left feeling terribly disappointed. This was such a journey. And then you go on to say, however, I'd got this far and there was no giving up or turning back. So sometimes being on the outside, we may not fully appreciate the extent of the emotional highs and lows during cancer treatment. Can you tell us, uh, did you do anything specific to manage your emotions and cancer uh, mentally? Um, I think we always just look to things one step at a time, right. and uh, that was that was very very important. Not mm. to think, well, when that happens or this or yeah. that, but it was just one step at a time all the way along. The the strange thing about my cancer journey was that I did have total peace of mind, right? And um, I've never really experienced that before or after. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I try to gain it back as yeah. often as possible, but I had total peace of mind. Um, and I felt that life could go on yeah. with the family without me. It wouldn't be the same, yeah. but they were in, all in a position that they could cope. Um, and so that, that helped me a lot. Um, though I accepted the disease, it wasn't anybody's fault. I was told it wasn't my fault, but it didn't mean giving up, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, it was just took it as it came. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you tell us a bit about the moment you were recommended Avastin? At that time that was not freely available in the NHS and had to be paid for privately. And then um, how the treatment worked and the outcome for you? When the, the effects of the tumour, the, the effects of the chemotherapy were, was diminishing, yeah. um, I felt that I was on a losing slope right. because I was getting more and more tired, the side effects were building up, and uh, I, I felt that maybe I wouldn't be able to continue and there was nothing else. So um, we then um, read about, actually, mm -hmm. we read about things that were be being done in Europe and in America and yeah. asked about them. And uh, I was told yes, but they weren't available on the NHS. So we tried to appeal and so on, asked the PCT mm -hmm. and they still refused me, so we decided to pay for it. But my surgeon as well as my oncologist were very, very helpful and uh, you know, my, my surgeon said that if that tumour would shrink away from the portal vein, yeah. which is where the clearance had to be, that he would operate. So um, we, were, we had to target, we did. Yeah. And maybe having this new medicine would be helpful so right. we were quite keen on being able to access it and we decided in the end to pay for it ourselves. Okay. Um, so tell us about your feelings and when you finally got that phone call from your surgeon that he was happy to operate and then why did you have to wait six weeks after your last chemo treatment for the operation to take place? Well uh, Mark and I used to try and take little breaks in yes. between chemo and uh, we were actually in uh, trying to remember, it was I'm trying to remember the name of the place, but I just can't remember it. But we weren't that far from yeah. home, we were always within one hour okay. journey back from home. Uh, but we were on a campsite, right? And um, we got that phone call, and he said, Yes, he said, You know, now is the time that we've, we've taken the x ray, and 
we, we just celebrated. Yeah. Mark played music, he plays the guitar, was yeah. singing, people could hear us across oh, the lovely. field and it was really, really a lovely time. Mm. But it was important to wait the six weeks because all your system has to go back to normal. Right. And um, your, your strength has to build up again right. from the chemo, the effects of the chemo have to okay. lessen. Um, so are you able to tell us a little bit about the surgery? Did you fully understand what was going to happen during the procedure and the mm. full extent of the risks associated with it? Yeah, I, I was told very, very clearly and uh, the risk was high that I wouldn't come out of it. Mm -hmm. But yet I was so happy to have the chance yeah. because um, you know I really didn't want to carry on forever mm -hmm. and uh, I was thinking you know, I don't want to be a burden on the family. And, and uh, I accepted what was happening to me, but I wanted to go for it, really, with the operation. Yeah. But I was told very clearly that I might not come out. Yeah. Um, it, was, it would involve two complete teams of surgeons, so the gastroenterologist and then the liver surgeon, because it was like two separate operations, yeah. one after the other. Um, but even though I knew that this might be the last few minutes of my life as I went in, yeah. I accepted that and thought lucky to have that chance. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, th that's my next question. You, <laughs> despite the seriousness of the operation, you described the feeling of excitement, you know, going in. It's a strange thing because my wonderful surgeon, mm -hmm. um, he said, I'm the only person who's had a smile on my face all the way <laughs> through the operation. Yeah. And uh, yes, I was really happy to have that chance. I felt lucky. Um, what happened in the period soon after the operation? Um, you described severe pains in your stomach, and then you also tell the story of the MRSA worry in the ward, and then you talk about how different patients in the ward reacted to their, you know, their conditions, and even noisy shells being put up in the room near you. So you had a lot to deal with at the same time. Yeah, I imagine my senses were heightened by the morphine. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I had this morphine pump which I could operate myself, but right. they wouldn't let you overdose, overdose. on it. So I imagine some of it was, you know, because I was on morphine. And uh, in, in that intensive care ward, um, I really, once I'd come out of that operation, I was fighting for my life. And in my mind, there was that, you know, when you're not, you don't want to give up, you yeah. don't want to lose. And uh, I didn't want anything to get in my way. Mm -hmm. And I could see the nurses in the opposite bed cleaning the wall. Yeah. And I overheard their conversation because I think with the morphine, it, it, it yeah. enhances your senses. Yeah. Um, and they were talking about what they were doing and they, they had a patient there with MRSA and I thought, I'm not staying here. Mm -hmm. You know, I was absolutely wanting to survive. Yeah. And so, um, in fact, they moved me out of the ward, out of the intensive yep. care, because I wasn't happy to be mm -hmm. there. <laughs> yeah. And so that really is the story. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then what events led up to? You, you described the period where you had to have your stomach drained and how like terrible that was for you. What events led to that happening? Well, I had a blockage. Um, okay. And um, my my bowels weren't functioning, right. and so my stomach inflated. Okay. And uh, I really felt I was going to burst, and it was, it was rock hard, you mm -hmm. know, and huge. Yeah. And I, I had stitches, fifty uh, staples right. across the cut across my chest, 
So it went all the way from the right-hand side to the left-hand side entirely. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if this expands anymore, because it was hard, I'm going to burst. Yeah. And I was more concerned about the clips popping yeah, out yeah. than even the pain or anything else. I wanted, you know, I, yeah. I really wanted that operation to be a success. success yeah. And so I, I was really, really worried. Okay. <laughs> um, in your book, you describe the catalogue of events that led up to the results of a report stating that the lymph now showed adenocarcinoma, which is the same cancer as your primary. So the cancer had then spread. So how did you feel after hearing this news um, and what happened next? Uh, it was, I'm trying to remember the exact time, it was Christmas time again. And uh, I remember there was a special Doctor Who program on and our two sons were there some watching uh, with Mark. And I didn't want to disturb them, but I could feel this lump just as though expanding yeah. in my throat. Um, so after the program, I, I spoke about them. I spoke about this, and uh, I wanted. I wanted it to be checked, and right. I phoned up. Um, but then I was told that, don't worry about it. But I insisted on a checkup, and uh, it, it was out of hours. You see, so. Um, I, I just went into the hospital on my own yeah. the next morning. I didn't have an appointment because Mark and I had planned a four-week trip around France. France yeah. Yeah. And um, this was just like three days before now. And um, at the hospital they, they did test it and it was found that the cancer returned in mm -hmm. my lymph. And my oncologist say, he did say, go away for two weeks if you like and then we'll start treating afterwards. But I just wanted, I was, I don't know what I really, uh, how I could describe it, but I was uh, fighting yeah. for survival. Yeah. And I felt that emotion, that I didn't want anything to come between them. I didn't want the risk yeah. of delaying. Yeah. So I wanted the treatment yeah, straight true. away. Yeah. Um, so after all of that happened, then eventually you were given the news that your CEA level had reduced to 1.6 and the swelling in the lymph gland had totally regressed. That must have felt amazing. So what were the next steps then after that? Well, I had been asked several times at the hospice, St. Richard's Hospice, and they were such wonderful people. Um, and I, they, I had talked to them and they said, what about writing about your story? Write it down. Because they knew I'd, I'd been an English teacher. And um, I thought, I haven't done this yet. It was a feeling of guilt. Yeah. You know? I thought, I must write. I must write about this now. And uh, I wanted to give back mm -hmm. something to the people who'd helped me. Bowel Cancer UK, who'd been fantastic in yeah. helping me through my appeals, in, in trying to get the, the medicines that I needed. Yeah. The hospice who'd always cared for me. And it's such a wonderful place, meeting other people. It's not a sad place at all. Yeah. It's a very calm, peaceful, wonderful place yeah. where you feel, you know, you have complete peace of mind. Yeah. So I wanted to give back, really. Okay. Um, and so that was the next step. Yeah. I wanted to write. <laughs> right. Um, so we'd love to hear the story then of, of the drug and your PCT. You say Bowel Cancer UK were very helpful during this time, um, especially following the initial refusal of funding, and there was much publicity and an appeal hearing. So can you tell us a little bit more about this? 
yes, because I needed this, um, I needed a private drug to right. be added to my usual regime. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I asked for it, I was refused. And then Balkans UK helped me to appeal for it. And uh, we actually took it you know, to, to the panel. I attended the hearing, I spoke personally. And they refused me the medicine mm -hmm. and we had to pay for it. So um, these are all sorts of worries. Cancer doesn't wait no. for decisions like that. You exactly. have to act, you have to make. Yeah. And uh, my mom paid for half the treatment. But at that time, you lost all your treatments. Yep. If you wanted one private drug added, yep. so it was a big decision. It was yep. going to cost several thousands of pounds. Um, and, and we decided, I, I thought I wasn't worth it, yeah. but uh -huh. let, leave money for the family, for the people who are living. Um, but they all wanted me to have it, so this was, it was a big decision, and we decided to pay. But my thoughts are, what about other patients? Yeah. Okay. What about those people who can't uh, find the money? We had to find the money. Yeah. But what about the people who can't? Can't, yeah. You know, we have to have a fair system. Definitely. Um, so how did you feel in knowing that you had a part to play in the government's promise to review and then release new guidelines for PCTs? Um, my concern was for fairness, as I think I've already expressed, an equal treatment. Yes. And um, it's not, it wasn't just the, the money side of it, it was the fight for it, yeah. you know, and the fairness for it and expressing your views. I actually attended the hearing when they decided, well, they didn't tell me on the spot yeah. that I wouldn't have uh, funding for mm -hmm. this drug, but it was the fact that um, they told me later on, but I was able to stand there and express my viewpoint. Yeah. Nonetheless, I felt it hadn't been listened to, mm -hmm. but at least I'd done it. Yes. So there, there is something in that, you yeah. know, because you can go away with your thoughts and you can talk about them later on and you can express your views politically and yeah. openly to the system yeah. because you've gone through it and yeah. you've experienced it Definitely. and you can try to make it fairer. Definitely. Um, so going on to your involvement, you're, you're involved with a lot of different um, societies, um, one of which is bowel cancer and the other one Europa Colon and you're a patient ambassador for those two. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement there? Certainly. Um, all patients like myself who can relate to their experiences to in order to help others yeah. and to make a fairer system and that's what uh, Balkans UK and Europa Colon do mm -hmm. they try to gain access to drugs to make a fairer system uh, to help patients in that situation yeah. to, to look at the legal system mm -hmm. to try to make it right and uh, with Europa Colon it's, it's across Europe so we, and the, the just varies so tremendously from one yeah. country to another, the access to drugs mm -hmm. and uh, treatment of patients. So uh, it helped me to express my feelings, to become involved, right. and it also helped me to give back something. It right. was a medium through which I could give back all the help that had been given to me, mm -hmm. and they'd helped me. Okay. Um, so to me, uh, it's not just access to drugs, it's raising awareness, it's helping people to live healthier lives. Yeah. Um, it's helping people to ask for what they want mm -hmm. and to express their own views and not just be told yep. what to accept. Uh, you do have a choice. Yep. 
and to help save lives in yeah, the end. That's definitely. what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so you ended your book by saying, oh, we're, we're all going to be more prepared when the cancer does return. Now, the book was published in 2009, I believe, and now we're almost 10 years later. So how have you been, Barbara? Uh, there have been ups and downs yeah. in, you know, um, the, the NHS have been wonderful. Um, and once you're in the system, you know, I've been looked after very, very well. Um, I've had regular checkups, mm -hmm. and when I've had concerns, they've answered my questions. Uh, my doctors have all been fantastic. Uh, the ups and downs have been with my tumour markers, which were worrying at times. Yeah. And in fact, um, I did have the one recurrence when, when we've talked about it already. Yeah. Uh, so there are stressful times at the beginning. It was always stressful waiting for the results to see whether your tumour marker was still within normal yep. range or not. Um, but from the beginning, I was told that my chances were the cancer would return. Right. And I always asked the questions, how long within three years? Yep. You know? So that was quite a threshold for me to get over those three years. Yep. And then I started to not worry quite so much because yep. I actually thought, well, I've had three years, I'm now very lucky. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Even if something happens, and you can't stop worrying, obviously, but I've been lucky, so yeah. you look at the positive, positive side, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, two years ago, maybe three years ago now, my tumour markers did rise consecutively into abnormal. And I was very worried. And being um, a patient in within patient groups such as Europa Colon and Bowel Cancer UK, um, I knew what to do right. and this is what we try to advise other patients and that is to really insist on having all those checks and I had all the checks possible yeah. and they all came out clear. Okay. So okay. and now for the first time actually in two years my uh, tumour marker that's called the CEA for bowel cancer, yeah. colon cancer, uh, has gone back to normal. Oh, <laughs> so amazing. it's great yeah. but these are things that pe perhaps other people don't realise. Mm -hmm. There, there are stressful times. Yeah. Um, so what projects are you currently working on and what's next for you? Really, I felt that I had so much help given to me that I wanted to give something back. Mm -hmm. And um, it, I have to do it. You know, it's a, I feel I have to do that. Um, I'm heavily involved in advocacy. I'm a patient ambassador for Europa Colon and also for Bowel Cancer UK. I've done work for EMA mm -hmm. and uh, for NICE as well during licensing of drugs and okay. discussions on that. Um, I'm a patient advocate for Inspire to Live, which right. is a Dutch organization. Um, I've done a lot of work for the EORTC right, during yes. their projects. Um, I also uh, work for the company called. Um, Escort, right? Yes, and um, and a subgroup of that is a public patient involvement engaging consortium, uh, which we are involved in, and um, I've also done work with the SGC, which is a, a genomic consortium in Oxford, and um, European Access to Patient Medicines, and uh, personally asked to comment and speak for various organisations including pharmaceutical companies from time to time. Okay. And really, um, I'm very happy to be involved in such a way okay. in order to 
help other patients gain access to the drugs that they need and the right treatment. And then finally, Barbara, do you have any closing remarks you'd like to make to our you know, readers and listeners? Um, do you have anything you'd like to say? Um, I think every patient's an individual. I think everyone has personal needs right. and everyone should be considered as a person. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you go to your doctor, there is not just one treatment to fit everybody. Yeah. And that's being discovered more and more and more today. Um, colorectal cancer is just not one disease. Yeah. You don't just have that. Yeah. Um, there are so many different types of it and so many different treatments. Mm -hmm. And then your body is working against it as well, against yeah. that treatment, uh, trying to stop it working. Yeah. It's, it's, such, it's so uh, odd to imagine. But the main thing is for patients to be able to express their own needs and to be looked after as an individual and uh, for the doctor to look at them and see what that patient needs. Some mm -hmm. patients want uh, treatment, yeah. some patients don't want treatment and everyone should, every wish should be inspected. I remember uh, Dr. Kate Granger who started her campaign Hashtag hello, my name is, yeah. and I always refer to her. Yeah, doctor, please look at me. I'm a person. Yeah, yeah. You know, and these are things, and these are the pa what patient groups also try to address in the system, mm -hmm. so that patients can get the treatment, and in the end, we will save money yeah. through doing that because the diagnosis, awareness, healthy eating, exercise. Absolutely. I'm sure I'm missing out a ton of things, but. Every single fact is important. Right. We are, we should be responsible sure. as people yes. to lead healthy lives. Absolutely. But uh, every case of cancer can't be put down to that the person hasn't done that. Mm -hmm. And whatever, if the person falls into that category where they're unfortunate and they're ill, we must take care of them. We have Absolutely. responsibilities to do that, yes. and the patient organisations help patients to do that. Yeah. Okay. Well. Thank you very much, Barbara, for talking to us and telling us your story. Um, we really appreciate it, and it was wonderful to spend some time with you. Um, and I wish you all the very best for the rest of the conference and the masterclass and all your other plans this year. And I wish you all the very best. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for sharing. It's been a pleasure sharing my story with you. Thank you.